My name is M. Costa, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts, uh, Noah Guyberson. Hello. And Rob Frawley. Hey there. And our absurdly special guest, Sam Corbin. Hello. So we are all, to varying degrees of bugginess, uh, gathered virtually here for uh, Fax Machine's first ever live stream show. So Fax Machine is a show for and by people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. Um, and we are so excited to learn and laugh with everyone who's tuned in and joining us. Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you to Caveat for mm. making this possible and for building this really awesome online space where we can hang out and nerd out and drink all while pantsless and have it be somehow legal. It's great. It's good stuff. <laughs> So, uh, also thank you to Vocabulary, New York's premier language or show for language lovers that'll also be live streaming right here next Saturday, and who kindly lent us our special guest, NYC-based <laughs> writer, comedian, performer, and pun queen, Sam Corbin. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, it, it is very uh, gratifying always to like nerd out with people in a forum that I've never explored before. Um, I mean, you are very gracious and not not demanding that we do a pun themed episode. <laughs> so I appreciate it. I love bugs. I'm so excited to talk about bugs. Yeah, it's going to be great. And we, we try to keep an open mind as best we can, that we definitely converge upon puns more often than not. Yes, an, op an open hive mind, I believe, is how mm, we prefer it. Yes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> But so I, I cite your pun queen status, mm -hmm. um, and this is it comes from uh, something I've heard that you have been involved with this competition called Punderdome, um, and may or may not have a thirty-three run championship going on with that something like that. Yeah, yeah, I am currently the all-time champion, but I, I, uh, I don't know whether to be ashamed of that or not. I mean, I'm proud of it, but no. I guess it's just you know, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> <laughs> um, and luckily, no one has the chance to dethrone me while uh, while the pandemic is happening. So I'm just enjoying my status for as long as possible. <laughs> well, not not to mention the other people who have even won Punderdome events are so far behind you. Like there have, I think there's another one here right now who doesn't have any chance of catching up with you. <laughs> okay, but then but then it's special, you know, a one time champion. That's like a single nice trophy instead of 33 costumes in a closet, one of which is this bee costume. <laughs> yeah, Sam, I want to ask, do you think, what do you think Michael Phelps does with his medals? Does he even care about them? Because I, I care don't know. dearly. <laughs> Maybe he like 
maybe he, I don't know, bakes them all. No, you can't eat metals. I'm just thinking, what are the uses? He puts different things in his baking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I bring the costumes out to social events. Like, I've been to the beach with some friends at an overnight, you know, house, and I just break out the costumes when everyone's feeling spicy. And it really, it's never Dude. a bad time. <laughs> okay, so the way that tonight's show is going to work. So each of my co-hosts here will share one fascinating fact, and then I'll issue a pub-style trivia quiz. And I should say, this quiz will also be loosely inspired by the show's theme, which, as you might have gathered from all the chatter and all of our faces and looks, is bugs, uh, insects. We are bugging out over entomology. Um, But, you know, I just also at this moment want to take another second to just really reiterate to thank everyone so much for tuning in, and thanks again to Caveat for hosting us. Especially now when we're all feeling antsy and wishing that we could flee from our social distancing (laughs) cocoons, it's so nice to connect with the Caveat community over the web and see all the buzz their shows are generating. And when we were bitten by the live stream bug ourselves and hoping we might be able to join, Caveat again gave us a home and the opportunity to share with you what makes us tick. All right, I've been talking too much. Cheers. So good. Wait, was that the drinking game? Is that we have to drink whenever there are puns? Yeah, and if you started there, it might be the end of the night. Yeah, it might be wasted. <laughs> you, it might be time for another another one. Um, we'll say one sip for that just to you know play the long game here. Noted. All right. Um, with that, I think I've introduced us. So, Rob, if you want to get us going with the facts, take it away. Absolutely. So it is my absolute pleasure to tell you a taxonomic tale because this week I learned that one man traveled all the way to Papua New Guinea, and in a week, he identified 101 species of weevil. Um, (laughs) Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, including 101 weagles preserved in wax. Sorry, weevils. Um, But so (laughs) what happened here? How did a man find 101 weevils in a week? Why is that special? And then what did he call them all? So we're going to talk a little bit about taxonomy, and I want to tell you basically... um, all the different ways that you could start at this story and wind up at another ridiculous fact. So um, here are a few of the headlines that came out of it. Scientists describe over 100 new beetles in New Guinea, uh, 101 new species of Trigonopterus weevils from New Guinea. Um, this was the actual uh, Zoo Keys uh, publication. So very exciting work. Here are just 60 mm. of the 101 distinct weevils that this science group found uh, in the course of a week. Um, and... What, what really this speaks to is the fact that there's an incredible biodiversity on Earth and that um, there are a lot of places where we have not kind of rigorously gone through and found all the species. And so uh, this group showed up. They're a German research group. Um, they landed on the island. They'd been there before, and they, they just picked like a random piece of the kind of un, unadulterated natural land, and they found all of these bugs. And they just made one collection, really. It took about a day to collect them all. And then the rest of the time they spent uh, preserving them, categorizing them, testing their DNA, um, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and I want to just remind you how you name things in science. So there are all these different levels, the kingdom, the phylum, the class, the order, the family, the genus, and the species. Each of them is kind of a more specific name that we have for living things. And you can remember it by... King Philip came over for good spaghetti. That's that's one that I, I've heard before. I grew up on kings play cards on fat green stools. Um, but the names that we talk <laughs> about for these bugs, um, we usually say the binomial nomenclature. 
and this is where things are going to start to get really interesting. Down here on the good spaghetti, as as they would say here, or the genus and the species name. So you know that uh, Homo sapiens, that's the genus and species um, that we have for humans, and Canis Canis for dogs. So here's some weevils. Um, and just to run it through it, there are animals, arthropods, insects, coleopterids, which is like beetles. And then these are like specific and more specific and more specific types of beetles, um, including the Cryptorhinitiae, which is something to do with like a mystery nose. Um, and then the last one is Trigonopterus. Uh, and so these are flightless beetles. Um, there are probably a thousand of these different species. Um, at the time that these 101 were found, there were only 90 that were known. Um, so they doubled the number of weevils known of this genus. Uh, and in the years since, these groups have now found about 500. So they estimate that there are probably thousands of different types. Um, and on the right, I'll explain what that is in a minute. But this is one of the um, kind of, this is the, one of the only ways to tell what different species they are. So this is huge. You find 100 different weevils. You, have, you know what their genus is, right? Their genus is Trigonoptera. That's already there. So what species is it? Um, the rules of nomenclature dictate um, that the naming of a species has to comply with the guidelines established by an international commission on zoological nomenclature, or the ICZN, or the Ixen, as I imagine they call it in <laughs> Germany, um, and elsewhere, I don't know. Uh, but so the Ixen has kind of three big rules that you can't break. Uh, one, the name must be unique. right? So you can't pick a species of beetle and then call it like the whatever beetle homo sapiens because that's no good. It has to be a unique genus and species name. The second, the name can't be rude, which is incredibly vague. Um, but so it really means that like, you can't like say like, it's the like Noah's stupid beetle or like, Hey, yeah. See, cause that, that wouldn't would be a great name for a beetle. <laughs> for a beetle. <laughs> I mean, I think it's against the rules, but we'll talk a little bit later about people who really push their luck with this. Can, um, can the name be rude to the person, but not the beetle? Can it be stupid Noah's beetle? Hey, <laughs> that also is a great name for a beetle. <laughs> so again, very vague, but meaningful. So uh, Ixen would probably uh, frown upon such a name. However, that doesn't mean they don't exist because the International Commission is younger than Carl Linnaeus and like the tradition of naming things in this way. Um, and finally... You can't name the species after yourself, uh, which is a rule against kind of, I guess, self-promotion. That self-aggrandizing entomologist who wants to name beetles after himself can't do it. Uh, but you can name it after other people, and they can be friends, mentors, celebrities, or enemies. And we're going to talk about that as we get through this part of the show. And so this group that went out to the forests of Papua New Guinea, they brought 101 beetles in and they started naming them and they started naming them based on characteristics the color the shininess the texture what we call morphological traits like things that tell you about how they look um and they ran out of things to say um i'll also say ironically uh and i brought this up with the group earlier this week that so to say that the name can't be rude would preclude you from saying something like oh this is a big dick beetle like that would be a no-go name in taxonomy it seems um, like a nice name for the beetle. I think the beetle would be proud to have that name. I think the beetle would love it, perhaps. I don't know. What but... if it's like, I feel like there got to be some beetles. Are we, are we still talking about weevils or are we talking beetles now? Um, yeah, we could be beetles. These are all specifically but, weevils. 
Okay, let's just say there's bound to be some insect that is notable purely because it has the largest penis to body ratio or something. You I'm know? sure. Oh, it's, I mean, I don't know about weevils. I think barnacles have that record, like just in general, but. Barnacles but, um, have big but, dicks? Y- yeah, that's the word on the street. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I, the different invertebrate, uh, like invertebrate zoologists would know the answer, but like not the ones that I read about this week. <laughs> what, what the scientists had to do was basically make up names um and so what they were left with was literally going to a papuan phone book and pulling out some of the most common last names um in in uh new zealand or sorry in papua new guinea and so one species is the trigonopterus warriorum named after the last name wari and another is the moriarum named after the morea which are common last names and i thought wouldn't it be cool if i made a quiz that asked about what these names their etymologies are so you could say what are we describing yeah, that'd be great. Would have been great. Um, so the problem is there are 832 languages spoken in New Guinea, and it includes all kinds of like uh, like English, uh, German, uh, French, and then Pidgin or Island French, uh, like a Creole German. And then there are all the Papuan, the family of Papuan languages, which are not dialects of each other. They are several hundred distinct languages, each of which originated probably on its own island um, that has a lot of similarities to other island languages. But so to, to figure out what Wari means um, is basically impossible. Um, or Morea. There are so many different like diverging lineages of where that word could have come from. Even to figure out what the name Papua means, uh, because New Guinea is a is a, a westernism. It's something that like Spanish uh, sailors named the place um, as part of their like kind of naming of the globe. But Papua is a Papuan word, um, and it either refers to um, basically nations united overseas, so being like a long distance nation or an archipelago, or it might refer to um, curliness of hair, which is like a character trait. And th- these are like the two leading theories, and etymologists really don't know which one is better. Hey, what would you call a Long Island nation that serves a delicious, uh, uh, beloved American food? Pizza? Maybe? <laughs> what? Papua John's? <laughs> uh, that's why she's the fun queen! <laughs> it's the only one I'm going to do all night. I, I won't... I... <laughs> Don't embarrass us in front of our friends, Sam. <laughs> There's a there's a much bigger chain a little bit to the south. It's oh, Domino Australia. No. Oh man. <laughs> uh, uh, oh boy. But anyway, um, so they drew heavily from the phone book, which is where these researchers like were like, okay, I give up. Like, let's just make up names, uh, which sounds like a cop out, but it's actually a super common practice. Not necessarily going to a Papuan phone book, <laughs> but just making up names. Um, so here's another wow. one that was discovered in the same group, and it's Trigonopterus Chewbacca. What? <laughs> and it, it has, like, golden hair, and it's, like, fairly large, and that's what it's called. And it is the Chewbacca weevil. Flowing locks. <laughs> you said it had golden hair? Yes. So if you look on the legs. But that's, Chewbacca doesn't have golden hair. Yeah, it does. It's, <laughs> all right, all right. Now we're splitting hairs. Come on. Tame blonde hair that blows he the has, wind. At, at best, he has highlights. <laughs> All right, it's not in the Brady Bunch, but like, fine. <laughs> Man. Well, there's there's another one uh, with a greenish tint that's called the Yoda Weevil, and all of these were named by the same guy in a week, like the same team. That was just like uh, Yoda, uh, Chewbacca, uh, and <laughs> and like 
it's just remarkable that and this is totally fine this is completely within the the iczn uh nomenclature rules so they they had a lot of well, fun so i mean were, were they like uh do or do not there is no trigonopterus <laughs> i love the idea should have been, been trigonopterus sorry <laughs> I really love the idea of like a CEO of nomenclature being like, have 80 names for weevils on my desk by 8 a.m. <laughs> like resulting in this uh, Yoda. <laughs> yeah, and so <laughs> that's basically what happens now. And and this is a result of like back in Darwin's day, it took a long time to say like, this is a unique species. Like you would have to do like make your drawings and all your notes and then bring a sample back uh, called a holotype and have it observed by a society to say like, this is like a new species and we declare it's different. And now with things called DNA barcoding, where basically you can look into really specific genetic sequences, you can say, oh no, this is different. This one is also different. And this one is different too. And so that's how in a week's time, they were able to process all of these samples, DNA barcode them and say that these are distinct. And then the problem, like the, the real rate limiting step is coming up with names. Um, and so this is a new field, basically a new problem in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's been dubbed turbo taxonomy. Um, and it's just going turbo, literally. Did Intuit <laughs> buy the name? Turbo taxonomy. It's not really the most positive association, so but they're going for it. But yeah, sure. I mean, and as, as I may, um, I won't talk about hmm. it specifically, but it only took two years for Game of Thrones to be on the air before there were characters of Game of Thrones, like bugs and other animals named after them. And so again, like, we could spend like there's a there's a list on Wikipedia that is incomplete of all the <laughs> animals named after celebrities, animals named yeah. after fictional characters, uh, and it is a hoot. It is a really good time. Uh, if you're ever quarantined home alone, I highly recommend going to this mm. Wikipedia page and just looking at the pictures. Um, well, I wonder. I wonder for uh, praying mantises. You know, like famously, they can be decapitated in certain circumstances. I wonder if one of those is named after Ned Stark. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, praying mantises can be decapitated? Yeah, they practice sexual cannibalism. Yeah, but <laughs> and, in, uh, in certain circumstances... Okay. But, like, yeah, they, never to, it was a they never live. It was a youth... Oh, okay, well, I'm so sorry. They do actually just... continue mating <gasps> after they have been, they've been... Their heads have been eaten by... Oh, yeah, I do remember. praying mantis okay. they're mating mm. with. Mm. Yep. Unlike I'm getting Ned ahead Stark. of ourselves, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but so... Turbo taxonomy is this idea that like you're going to create a bunch of things and you have to really, really quickly name them. Um, and it was Donald Quick and Bandika Butcher in 2012 were kind of the first group to really like do this extremely fast. So they actually discovered 178 species of wasps in Thailand uh, in a slightly longer period of time. But they went through and they, they captured and they sequenced and they uh, preserved 178 wasps. Uh, and they ran into the same problem. What the, like, what am I going to call this wasp? There's nothing special about it. <laughs> so there are some boring names that I may get to, but I really tried to highlight the best ones. And so this one that had kind of iridescent eyes, long skinny legs, and a kind of golden, like kind of, I won't, I don't know exactly the right word, but it is a very memorable looking wasp. They named this one Elioides Gaga mm, after nice. Lady Gaga. Oh, yeah, and Interesting. that is, in the short period of time, Turbo Taxonomy has been like a scientific pursuit. Lady Gaga has gotten her fair share because uh, just last year, um, this animal, which is a tree hopper, uh, was named after named after Lady Gaga, the Kaikaya Gaga. And it was done by a grad student named Brendan Morris. And I love the idea of a grad student being like, 
Yep, this is also Lady Gaga. His defense was, she has dark purple and red uh, body with dramatic horn-like protuberances, not dissimilar to shoulder pads. So, Lady Gaga. <laughs> and this is just one of the one of the best examples. There are, again, so, so many. So I only want to draw attention to a couple more. Um, who do you think this horsefly is named after? I, I think I... Uh, is it is there any chance it's like Darth Vader? Ooh! <laughs> I, Darth- I think I... Mm. There's definitely one named Darth Vader. There. It has kind of a weird black mask. There is, and that's coming up later, so I'm, uh, oh, I'm okay. glad you're teasing this. Is um, it? Is it some kind of pirate with that golden booty? Oh. <laughs> well, oh, my God. Blackbeard? The, the, the golden booty is the key here. Um, okay. And agree Jeff Goldbum. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. I wish. Um, yes. Because... <laughs> The, the namer of this one, <clears throat> their defense was just that it was it was glamorous and like it stood out from all the rest for being fabulous and it looked like a queen bee. And so they named it uh, Scaptia Beyonce. It a striking golden <laughs> oh tip God. to its abdomen uh, formed That's by a amazing. dense patch of golden hairs. Oh. Uh, so there's the Beyonce horsefly, uh, which, is, which is wonderful. Uh, and then, oh yeah, Beyonce. Can Beyonce launch a lawsuit for be- like the horsefly? <laughs> So if you're unhappy with this kind of naming, it's really unclear what sort of uh, what sort of action you can take. So mm-hmm. ICZN is international, um, and like the names are, I mean, they're scientific and they're also like Latinized. So it's it's really no one has ever that I've found successfully like sued over this. But I mm. imagine you could if you're really unhappy. I just wouldn't it. put it past her. I I just like I don't <laughs> think she knows there's a horsefly named after her. She would sue it. <laughs> you think? Yes. She sued, like, I, I can't remember what this fact, this thing was, but she sued, like, an absurd, for, for someone for trying to co-opt her, like, daughter's name. I forget. Blue, blue Ivy? Yeah, but it, okay. yeah, it was something absurd. Yeah, blue, blue whales are in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway. So that, that horse fly is actually super rare. It's only been found three times in nature, the first in 1981. So in, like, 40, whatever, how many years? Yeah, 40 years. It's only been found three times. So it's very rare. Huh. But, so they, she, she's never but it wasn't it, named sure. until when? 2004? Uh, in the last 15 years. Yeah, so huh. a lot of times... They just um, they sat on it. it the, right, the, the right naming inspiration wasn't there yet. They were just holding out and then Queen Bee yeah. appeared and there you go. Okay. <laughs> they were just like, Madonna, huh. no. Let's just wait. It's not, not quite right. We'll get it. We'll get it. <laughs> okay. But so the... The second to last species or genus genera of, of bugs I want to talk about is Agathidium. Uh, and these are fungus eating um, beetles. And so Agathidium was a big family. And in 2004, a scientist realized, hey, actually, we just found all these new bugs that are kind of in what they call the near Arctic region, which is very far north. Oh. So it's much colder there. And so they, oh, it's, they live in the near Arctic. Do you think they do a lot of dog sledding with all that, that space up there? They need mushroom. <laughs> yeah i can just picture them like pulling the tiniest little sled actually okay. it should be really okay. cute that i would like Aww. to see <laughs> but so they changed the genera for a bunch of them they said oh these are no longer agathidium they are called jelly which is um it derives from the word for cold or frost mm-hmm. and so what do you think the scientists called these little perfectly round beetles Jelly bean. Jelly belly. No. That's great. Jelly donut. Wait, you're kidding. Jelly fish. Jelly fish. And jelly ring. 
This is the best thing I've ever seen. I, I don't <laughs> think I was. I don't think I was ready for that jelly. <laughs> <laughs> so. And like, so, so jelly legitimately means like cold or frost. So that's like a great name for like these northern living beetles. And then they're just like, well, <laughs> we've done enough. Oh my so god, enough one. science. And this was this was before. So only five names because this was before like turbo taxonomy had really kicked in. Um, but what's also fantastic about the Agathidium family is that they were famous in two thousand five. Uh, not for losing members, but for gaining members. So I think 70-odd Agathidium were discovered. Um, they're slime mold beetles, which might seem oh, gross. Ooh. And there are three of them that are named Agathidium bushi, Chenier, and Rumsfeldi. And so they're named after Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld of the then administration of the U.S. president. Um, were they like, uh, were they invasive species found in Iraq? <laughs> <laughs> if only it were so poetic. But... <laughs> Um, but the authors, two, two Cornell entomologists, they said, this is high praise. Like, so they said, we named these beetles in, in honor of them. This is not a slant, even though they are slime mold eating beetles. Um, and so they're like, no, no, it's all good. But two other people that they named beetles after in the same group were Hernando Cortez and Darth Vader. So like, it's not necessarily always a good thing to get a slime mold beetle named after you. And one of them even said, oh, I named one after my wife. And the other researcher said, well, I named one after my ex-wife. And so really unclear whether it's a compliment or not to have one of these Is that like a scientist <laughs> joke? <laughs> and then I, the other guy says, I named one after my ex-wife. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Just sounds like something dry scientists like a trope, say at a yeah. table. <laughs> name this beetle after my wife, please. <laughs> But so so this gets to the last point I want to make, which is just that you could name a bug after someone and they could potentially not like it. And there's a really long history of this. But the, the last thing I'll bring up is that if you are vengeful, which many of us are, um, you can no longer name bugs in this way uh, because of Ixen and their their stodgy old rules preventing you from naming mean things. But what you can do with the Bronx Zoo, is you can name a roach after anyone you want, and their collection of Madagascar hissing cockroaches oh. every Valentine's Day, they allow you to name, um, it's, they're unclear, but the intention, like the underwriting here, is you can name a cockroach after your ex. Um, just to say like... Please, <laughs> name a bug after my ex! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like... <laughs> yeah, so if you, sitting at home, think... Wow, what would be better than on <laughs> on May 17th naming a cockroach after a loved one or hated one? Um, you can send your donations into Caveat and we will absolutely name one of my cockroaches after anyone you want. Yeah. <laughs> This week I learned that the Egyptian sun god Ra occasionally cried, which is totally normal, but when his tears fell to the ground, they turned into bees. Um, and that's why we have bees. Raw emotion. There we go. Papa John's. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so, so for this fact, we have the word of a papyrus that is on display at the British Museum uh, from around 300 BCE that reads, The god Ra wept. And the tears from his eyes fell on the ground and turned into a bee. The bee made his honeycomb and busied himself with the flowers of every plant. And so wax was made, and also honey, out of the tears of Ra. 
Um, may I suggest that uh, if the bees uh, came from tears, they might grow up with daddy tissues? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, anyway. it'd only be fair. So I wanted to I wanted to also say so when I when I grew up and like you know there was some sort of like elementary school module on like Egyptian mythology uh, or whatever they you know they were like t- showing us the pyramids and being like this is an Egyptian god um, they always called it Ra and I think a lot of people recognize like that it that that is like a an Egyptian god like one of the main ones but I learned in looking up this stuff for this fact that Ra is actually pronounced Ray. And that we've all just learned it wrong. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't work with the raw emotion joke. So I thought I'd wait wait until now <laughs> to bring it up. Um, so now you know that. Basically, due to this association with Ray, bees held a really important role in Egyptian society for a very long time. Of course, in a, you know, honey and beeswax were extremely useful to them. Uh, honey was a really important sweetener in Egyptian cuisine. It was used in medicine for its antimicrobial properties. Um, and honey was used in everyone's favorite Egyptian pastime, pastime, embalming mummies. Um, so that was, that was something that came up a lot in the honey research. But... Beeswax had also, like, beeswax, not, like, you know, the stuff they make the cells out of, uh, had a ton of uses also, such as in, like, Egyptian cosmetics, uh, sculpture. In fact, one particular way of warding off evil was to make a beeswax carving of a hippo and then burn it. (laughs) Uh, Which, okay. I mean, it works for them. It was kind of interesting, though, because they they felt that beeswax was, like, a really nice, uh, it burned really well because it doesn't leave ash and it burns really bright. So it had these like special qualities that made it, um, you know, really nice for those purposes and sort of added to its sort of mythical. What's the hippo properties. part? Uh, the hippos were that basically the Egyptians were really fucking worried about hippos. Um, they <laughs> even to this day, I think uh, I, I think this is still true. Hippos are like other than humans kill the most humans. Yeah, they're really um, they're like very, yeah. very dangerous. Yeah. Wow. It's um, so weird well, that the hippo is the only interactive animal at the Rainforest Cafe. You can't touch any of the other animals, but you can put your mouth in an animatronic hippo. You can put your that mouth is... on an animatronic hippo? I mean, you can also do that, but you can put your hand <laughs> in the animatronic hippo's mouth. Sam, that's what you said. <laughs> yeah. What did I say? You can put your mouth on an animatronic yeah. yeah. God damn yeah. it. See, I've only had one. Don't worry. Day. Don't worry. We can edit this. It's not live. So. Um. <laughs> Anyway, the point is, the hippo is dangerous, and yet the children are putting their hands in its mouth. Yeah, that's negligent. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Actually, Actually, kids are all right. Creating a dangerous hungry, hungry precedent. Hippo used to be just played <laughs> in a in a coliseum. <laughs> that was Egyptian hunger. That was Egyptian Hunger Games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very um, good. But no, they they seriously were a genuine concern. <laughs> They're like a menace on the streets of. Alexandria or whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but oh, so a quick actually. Now that I'm glad that we came up with this because it's not really related to to bees, which or the sun, which my main fact is about. But I did have a bit of a hippo diversion, um, which was I wanted to go briefly <laughs> off topic. Um, but just on the topic of hippos and Egyptians being you know concerned about them, there's a ceramic hippo statue in the Met named William. <gasps> Um, and it's supposedly the unofficial mascot of the museum. But anyway, it was it was discovered buried in an Egyptian tomb with three of its legs broken. 
And researchers believe that this was deliberate so that William the Hippo statue couldn't harm the deceased person in the afterlife. You know what that's, uh, that recognition of that hippo is called? Hippo posthumous. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But I'm just like, that seems so weird to me. Like they actually broke it's like the little pottery legs so that it couldn't hurt the deceased person in the afterlife. But like, don't put a symbolic hippo in there if you're worried about like what it's going to (laughs) do. Anyway, one thing that it seemed to be really commonly used for was as a sealant to preserve food. Um, Another thing was like writing on papyrus, which is why like we have all this Egyptian writing on, you know, what is essentially, you know, paper, which you wouldn't expect to live for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, except that they did this extra thing of like sealing it in wax and that was able to preserve it. Um, And they also, yes, once again, it was involved in the embalming process for mummies and stuff. It was also used to make airtight seals around sarcophagi. So they would have like melted beeswax and then like around the lining. No, can I just jump in and say, do you see right, right between the ankles at the bottom of those statuettes and the hips? Do you know what's in the middle? What? Those are the bee's knees. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that builds. <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> I find no fault with that pun. Um, but anyway, just to like swerve back from, you know, the hippos and the beeswax and stuff to to bees, the animal. Um, so bees were actually really important to Egyptian society, not only because they were useful, but because um, they were considered sacred by like the sheer virtue of being gifts from Ray, who, in addition to being the sun god, was the on and off principal deity of uh, you know, of the ancient Egyptian pantheon. So bees had this really strong association with the sun in ancient Egypt. Um, and that was really interesting to me, like just from like a trivia point of view. Um, but as I got like more and more curious about bees and was just reading more and more, trying to carve around my fact, I, I, I looked more into like the behavior of bees that was relevant to the sun, or should I say their beehive your? <laughs> oh, you should. Yes. Pay. <laughs> okay. I'm all, all right. for it. Good note. Good note. <laughs> but no, I honestly like looking into bee behavior. I really started to learn all these awesome things about the bees and particularly how they use the sun as an integral part of their behaviors. Um, and I think in, at least in one case, actually their inspiration. Um, and so this is the case for one of my favorite things that bees do. Have y'all heard of the waggle dance? The Anybody? a bee dance. It's like do, they yeah, step like, around and they show you stuff. Not exactly. Not yeah, the wobble, right? Because that was at weddings for a little bit, and I was really into it. I was also. <laughs> well, there's into also the there's, yeah. <laughs> well, there's also like a, a song that goes, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell think, me it's not that. That was such a good bees, impression. <laughs> waggle, waggle, waggle. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> that's just like okay. that's the jam in the beehive. Bees getting down <laughs> at the club to waggle, waggle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so, but anyway, it's, it's actually, like, I, I thought I knew about it, but there turns out to be quite a lot more about this particular behavior than I was aware of, um, so, basically, one thing is that it's just hilarious to watch, um, that's, like, I encourage everyone after the show, you're already on YouTube, go look up videos of, like, the bee waggle dance, they go in these little, like, figure eights, and they just kind of go, like, <laughs> and what's so... <laughs> What's amazing about it, to be honest, is that, first of all, I read in, uh, in this paper that it is, as far as we know, the only form of symbolic communication in an invertebrate, 
which is amazing in and of itself. Um, but the way it works is when a foraging bee comes back to the hive, having found a source of food, it communicates the location by running in a, this like figure eight pattern, as I said, that indicates the angle that another bee would have to fly toward or away from the sun in order to find it. But of course, the waggle dance gets its name from the way bees convey even more information than just direction by waggling their butts. In other words, shaking their honey makers. <laughs> That was good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so the duration, actually, of this like waggling behavior indicates how far away from the hive the food is. And I've seen papers where they, they actually estimate that it's like roughly one second of waggling equals one kilometer. But even better, the, the, my favorite thing about this is that the intensity of the waggling, like how hard the bee is going waggling, um, indicates how excited the bee is about the food source. And how badly it wants other bees to know how great it is and, like, follow it to, like, get more of the nectar and stuff. Um, And so these bees basically will just, like, run in circles, like, twerking as hard as they can um, to tell all their little bee friends about this, like, new pop-up restaurant, a sunflower. Um, (laughs) What do you do if the bee, like, I have to know what you do if the bee is just, like, apathetic. Like the leather jacket bee, you know what I mean? Who just shows up as like, I guess there's this great food source, you know? <laughs> like, but I knew about well, it before it was cool. So when you go, it's already over, you know? Well, mm-hmm. I, I agree that bee would look super cool, but the hive would starve. Oh. Mm. So mm. it probably okay. worth it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> But another just incredible thing about this dance, I just had no idea, was that, so like you always think about like one bee coming back and being like, boo, there's my waggle, and then like, here, let's all go to the flower. But there are, of course, there are loads of bees in the hive, and many of them are foraging all at the same time. So what do they do when more than one bee finds a food source? They have a dance battle. Nice. <laughs> so like... <laughs> Two or more bees doing their waggle dances like all together, trying to convince as many bees as possible to follow them to their source instead of the other one. Oh my god! So, um, but no, I mean the, I mean that if if only it stopped there and how incredibly weird and cool it was. Because not only do they have like a little break dance battle, they they also will even deliberately mess up other bees' waggle dances and fight each other off to be like, no, I'm messing up your dance. Mine is definitely better. It's not just like all of them competing fairly. Um, and it's like some just like incredible mashup of like Step Up and the B movie. Step Up to the sweets. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I get that. I get that joke. <laughs> I watched the shit out of that movie. Oh, I love Channing Tatum. <laughs> oh, it's so good. In my head, I can't decide if it's more like like a rap battle in Eight Mile, or if this is more like lip sync for your life on RuPaul. Like, Ooh. what's what's really happening in this? No, song? it's the first one. It's the first one because like you have to. It, they're not on the. They're not up for elimination. Like the bees need food, or they're gonna starve. So it's really about. The coolest. Well, they, it's like, they are up for elimination. <laughs> what? In that sense, they are up for elimination. Oh, yeah. Another, in addition to this, another really interesting behavior uh, that bees participate in has come up in the news recently, and that pertains to everyone's favorite non-COVID-related villain right now, the murder hornet. Um, so I've mentioned uh, a couple different bee behaviors um, or behaviors, if you will. Uh, I, you guys were pretty clear about that before. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I've mentioned to you a couple bee behaviors that rely on the sun, but I also promised you one 
that it, in which I believe bees are actually inspired to emulate their, you know, celestial progenitor, uh, and which is, of course, a hot gas in plasma ball. Um, and I think that they do this by becoming what is actually known in the scientific literature on bees as a hot bee ball, um, which you can see here. Um, or it's also known as a hot defensive bee ball, which kind of makes it sound like they're worried what you think of them. <laughs> um, I, among, so basically, among the Asian honeybees that have actually been living with the threat of the murder hornets for a long time now, they have developed this strategy where they mob the murder hornet and flap their wings like as hard as they can, which metabolically creates so much heat that the murder hornet is boiled alive. But then all the bees are left unharmed because basically what they've, I don't, you know, figured out, I don't know if that's the right word to say, but sort of like the critical temperature for bees is like just starts at 47 Celsius. That's when they start to die. But for murder hornets, it's a little bit lower. So what the bees do is create a temperature that is, that does not exceed 46 Celsius. And that kills only the murder hornet. And that's like their big defense. So like they'll just get swarmed by dozens and dozens of these bees. They'll latch on. The first few might die, but they just start like flapping their, you know, wings as hard as they can. And that's like their big defense against murder hornets. But one of the reasons that like beekeepers are so concerned about murder hornets coming to us is that our bees don't actually know how to do that behavior. So one different, there's basically sort of broadly there's in the same genus, but uh, different species, the Eastern, um, bee, the Eastern honeybee where there's several different uh, subspecies. And then of course the Western honeybee. And that's like the one sort of in our you know drawings that we think about, it's called Apis mellifera. Um, so something that I found in this research that was really interesting is look, our US bees don't know how to do that. But what they do know how to do, apparently, is that somehow some scientists have discovered that if, uh, if you put eastern and western honeybees together in the same hive and basically create conditions where they're forced to share the same hive and like live together cooperatively, which they will do, they have determined that eastern and western honeybees have different dialects of the waggle dance itself. Mm. Mm. And what... And what was even more interesting about that paper is the researchers made them, you know, when they shared the hive, they had to like follow each other's like waggle dances. And they were actually able to mutually interpret the other dialect after some like trial and error. So that's an example. And in fact, that also was the first example of interspecies symbolic communication uh, among invertebrates, which is extremely cool. Hmm. And But it might also present the opportunity that maybe bee, maybe like our bees are able to learn this behavior as well. I don't know exactly how you would employ that, but you know, it might you know possibly be good for them. You know what our so, US bees are also great at? What? Storing data. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was very good. But anyway, the, the, the point is whether that works or not, it just adds to all the problems bees have with pesticides and colony collapse disorder, all that sort of thing. And we're facing, honestly, like dangerously low numbers of our little friends who help us pollinate crops and make honey and other products that we, just like the Egyptians, can't get enough of. So it's a problem. Um, but I think that I have a solution that I'm prepared to announce right here on Fax Machine. If the sun god Ra, Ray, sorry, the sun god Ray made bees once, he can make them again. And all we have to do is make him cry. How do you make a sun so, god cry? How? Ra sucks. <laughs> yeah, name a beetle after him. Unimportant sun god beetle. Yes. 
Yeah. So that's that's a perfectly good strategy. But I want all our, you know, the audience right now to be inspired by this example. So as this fact comes to a close, I encourage you to do your part to save our bees by sending us at Facts Machine Pod on Twitter or Instagram. Send us something you think will make Ray sad. Or like maybe a bad review of his job as the sun. <laughs> Some, something like that. Where, whatever you think we should say to Ray in order to make him cry out some more bees, feel free to get really weird with it. Tweet us, make us proud, save the bees. <laughs> Hell yeah. Nice. Very nice. Okay, so the fact that I <laughs> wanted to talk about today uh, is a thing I've been fascinated with for a very long time, which is known as the Schmidt pain index my morbid fascination with bugs comes from simultaneously being terrified of them and like loving the the fact that they can defend themselves and take all these different shapes and sizes and are theoretically sentient and have all these different tiny bug thoughts anyway the schmidt pain index specifically (laughs) refers to um a scale of pain inflicted by stinging bugs more specifically some bullet points it originated in a paper by someone named justin o schmidt who we'll talk about momentarily uh he wrote a paper on hymenoptera which is a class of uh bugs that includes wasps ants uh bees i will also talk about that in a second in 1983 and it's um a a paper that cataloged 78 species of stinging insects but it started to rate these insects by the type and intensity of pain that they inflict with their stings on a scale of one to four. And that scale includes decimal points. So one, 1.1, 1. 1, et cetera, all the way up to four. And in fact, I think the most painful bug sting is 4.0 plus. Um, so the study of this or the Schmidt pain index informally was concluded in a book Uh, called The Sting of the Wild that was published by Justin Schmidt in 2016. But since 2016, there have been YouTube influencers who have gone out of their way to like try to experience these stings, including someone named Coyote Peterson, who allegedly has found, uh, I think it's like the warrior wasp um, in Brazil. Allegedly, he claims it's like more painful than the most painful sting documented in the Schmidt pain index. So it's interesting that there could ever be like a definitive scale in the first place, but I love it uh, and I will tell you why. So, uh, oh, FYI, this is thanks to Noah. I, I, I had to Google what Hymenoptera as a class <laughs> is. It's an order of insects comprising sawflies, wasps, beetles, and ants. Now, there are two primary classifications um, of Hymenoptera, the suborders, Apocrita, which refers to narrow waste, and Symphyta, which refers to no waste. Which The two options. Yes, the two genders. <laughs> yeah. um, but what makes this more absurd, first of all, the idea that like you have a choice between a narrow waste and no waste just feels so unfair. <laughs> but second, I like looked, I clicked on these uh, suborders, and Symphita only includes sawflies and like one kind of wasp. So it's just kind of like a needless dig at the sawfly for not having a waste because he's like a long boy. <laughs> And I just feel like it's so unfair. Like you have this suborder, which is like most bugs. And then you just have the sawfly. It's like the wasteless bug. Anyway, I think that's unfair. Um, But this is Justin O. Schmidt. He's an entomologist. And I will tell you why he is a sting sommelier. Um, Yeah, he's, he's a currently living entomologist. And he's been stung by all of these insects that he cataloged. And I will tell you why he's a sting sommelier. In the Schmidt Pain Index, he does not just classify um, 
a, a bug by like, this is a 1.0, this is a 1.5. He describes the sting in glittering detail including the flavor and texture of the sting. I'm going to talk you through the four ranks of sting. This is a vague diagram including about 30 of the species that was included in an Atlas Obscura article about the Schmidt Pain Index. So you can see uh, on a scale of like 1, 1.5, 2, 2.5, then 3 and 4, you can see these classifications based on the shapes, um, based on the legend. It shows you. But uh, I will tell you basically four of the anchor descriptions at the rounded numbers, one, two, three, and four. So on the least painful, and this isn't even the least, least painful, there's like a 0.5, but the least painful is level one, and it's a sweat bee, which is those little uh, flat bees <laughs> that you see. I actually saw one today, and I screamed, and I was like distance hanging with a friend. I said, sweat bee! <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> it's like the little flat bees you see in the grass. Um and uh, it's uh, described as light and ephemeral, almost fruity, like a tiny spark has singed a hair on your arm. Um, just like beautiful to think about. I've had that happen. Um, so are those from Ra's sweat then? That's do my they assumption. Given, <laughs> are they from Ra's sweat? Oh, if other bees are from I don't tears, know, then I love that. Presumably. <laughs> sweat bee is like a beautiful, I feel like that's a nickname for like, I don't know, maybe a backup dancer. Like, me and my sweat bees like went on stage. It's like a cute name for like your crew when you have a dance performance. Like, can you give us all, all cr- like dance crew names yeah. by the end of this presentation? <laughs> sure, sure thing, sweat bee. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I knew that would be assigned to me, and I thank you. Um, so level two. Uh, an anchor bug for this is the bald-faced hornet. I hate this hornet, but uh, it's just it's just like not natural. It's like a hornet Ooh. with the saturation pulled out of it. It's just so eerie. It reminds me of the um, Black Mirror episode "Hated in the Nation" with the like creepy drone bees. I won't I won't spoil uh, I won't spoil it. It's such a uh, good episode. To see, I think it looks like a juggalo, but that is <laughs> yeah, a that's classier ICB, reference. The, uh, <laughs> the ins- okay, I can't figure out this pun. Um, but oh wait, no, 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 go back. It's described as rich, hearty, and slightly crunchy to get stung by this bug, similar to getting your hand mashed in a revolving door. One wonders whether he didn't get stung on the hand, but so many of these are like, uh, you pour something on your arm, a pebble hits your ankle. Like, I, I don't know where he's getting stung. Um, but uh, at level three, he, uh, you would rank the Florida harvester ant. I love this ant. It's so freaking cute, but also evil. Um, it stings. Yeah, just like, I like, I think this... I think it's just like, you know how people have that thing about Florida man? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I just feel like this is the Florida man version of the ant world. Florida also, ant, at it again. Oh my God. <laughs> Talk about the a adventures. narrow waist. This bug's legs are above Ooh. its waist? Like, what is happening? <laughs> this is a button for twerking in the ant world. Look at that. I just, it's, it's stingle and ready to make <laughs> Okay, so this ant's sting is described as bold and unrelenting. Someone is using a power drill to excavate your ingrown toenail. Um, A call out here. Yeah, disgusting. A call out here is that on the pain index, you would think like these are all just distinct classifications, but because it's sequential, 
Justin Schmidt actually says things like directly after this description. The next one is like, you find the drill is actually stuck inside your toe. <laughs> you know, it's very narrative, like choose your own adventure. Stings. Yeah. It's kind of like um, the, oh, how could this get any worse? And then he's yeah, like, yeah. Well, if this happens. Hold my earrings. <laughs> yeah, hold my yeah. I'll tell you. Um, yeah. Great. So, hold my beer. Oh. Very good. Um, okay, this is nah. the the theoretically the most painful uh, insect sting. It's the bullet ant, and I I love looking at this ant because it truly does look like if a bullet what like grew legs and just walked away was an ant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look at that! It's like a gun shot this ant out. A gun made of it. Okay. The point is, bullet um, ant sounds yeah, like a yeah. marble. Okay, wait, super the gun bullet. is also. Yeah, the gun is also so made you're of ants. The- <laughs> okay. I, I that haven't is. thought out this superhero movie specifically. that I haven't invented yet, but okay. So the bullet ant sting is described as pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. Incredibly painful. Um, now, when I first read about these stings, obviously I had to watch YouTube videos about people getting stung by them um, because that's the way I engage with my morbid fascination with bugs uh, is watching other people go through it even though I have like a phobia of get of bees and getting stung. Um, so I went online. I discovered that there's this guy named Coyote Peterson who's like the, the most public version of the stingman, you know, just going around getting stung. He actually like takes <laughs> pincers and just puts the bug on his arm and lets it go. Um... Oh, you should watch it. But this YouTube hole I went down, (laughs) (laughs) this YouTube hole revealed this really interesting thing about the bullet ant, which is, as it's considered one of the most painful bug stings, um, I want to tell you about something called the bullet ant glove ritual. If you have not watched uh, anything about this, you must go onto YouTube and torture yourself with it. Um, A specific tribe that the National Geographic did an article about was the Saturay Maui, but it's theoretically known among a lot of Amazonian tribes in Brazil. Um, And it's a coming of age ritual that the men, it's basically like a puberty ritual that the men have to undergo, wherein they wear a glove made of bullet ants woven in so that the butts, as you can see in this picture, their stingers are like inside where your hand is. So the way that they do this is that they numb the ants with like an herbal medicine that kind of acts as a sedative and it puts them to sleep. And then members of the tribe weave them very quickly while they're still immobile into this glove. The glove is then slid inside a mitt. And as you can see, when the ants wake up, all their asses are inside this glove and they're so mad because they're woven into a glove. So immediately they're just like ready to sting whatever they touch. And um, the member of the tribe has to put their hands in these mitts and wear them for 10 minutes um and they have to do this 20 times it's not just like one ritual oh my god they do it 20 20 times times? yeah nothing nothing is like dumber than watching the white people like youtube videos of like i went and tried the ritual (laughs) 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 and all the sort of like indigenous people are like these fucking yes i hate it anyway Yeah. (laughs) yeah Um, that's so incredible yeah because like what was the description of that again it was you're walking across hot coals with a three inch nail in your heel that's that's for one yeah yeah so like how how would he describe it like if you you know once you've done two you've run out of places for nails to go that's true well then you look like hellraiser guy (laughs) hellraiser is a movie about (laughs) bullet ants (laughs) 
yeah. So this is wild. Anyway, inspired by the Schmidt Pain Index, I want to play a very brief game with some of the other descriptions in order to read all of the uh, classification or all of the um, uh, descriptions of the stings. You have to buy Sting of the Wild. It's just you know, it's at this point, it's like a licensed uh, index. But I've recovered enough mm-hmm. to play a short game of Would You Rather, in which I will describe the pain inflicted by oh. a sting the way that Justin O. Schmidt describes it, and um, then you will guess which one you would rather, and I'll tell you if it's technically higher or lower on the Schmidt Pain Index. Um, okay, so a Would You Rather game. Here we go. The first, Would You Rather a flaming match head lands on your arm and is quenched first with lye and then sulfuric acid. <sighs> Or hot oil from the deep fryer spilling all over your entire hand. Ooh. I weird because I How how much does lie hurt? Whoa. Is lie is does lie hurt real bad? Isn't lie like corrosive? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a cleaning reagent. I think I go match head and a little bit of acid. That's me. The the other thing know how to play your game is that your nerve density in the middle of your arm is way less and your hand is way more sensitive so a match head and and lie there would probably just suck but like burning your hand you would feel very like particularly i didn't know that i say match head to the arm is lower agreed same had the same reasoning as you guys are right Chalk it up yeah. to the scientists to be correct. That is the Western honeybee at a pain level of two. Uh. Whereas hot oil from the deep fryer spilling all over your entire hand is a velvet ant at a pain level three. Hmm. Why velvet? Why velvet ant? That's such a soft huh. thing. Well, because, ants because have no, fuzzy, uh, right? They live <laughs> in the velvet underground. <laughs> is that like a subway that like only bands use? <laughs> Ridiculous. All right. Are you guys oh, ready boy. for the next round? Yes. Would you yeah. rather that someone fire a staple into your cheek or have a rat trap snap your index fingernail? Ugh. Ugh, they're so vivid. Um, <laughs> Emily, what do you Sting think? <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I would go for the cheek. I, ooh, I, think. I don't know. I'm absolutely fingernail. Mm. Rat trap. Yeah, I think I, I really? 100%. Similar to the hot fryer. Like which I may have almost experienced once. I've definitely snapped a rat trap, like at yeah. least partially on my finger. And I don't know about like the nail bed, but like oh, no, 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 it's that. Hmm. Yeah, really? Okay, I've not done it. Wait, but so I imagine which one are you going for, Rob? I'm saying the rat trap is the one I would prefer, so that's yeah. lower. I th- I'd rather have a rat, like a you know, like something snap on my. I am picturing a mouse trap. Is a rat trap like significantly worse? <laughs> I actually don't know. Maybe it has the teeth. That's what I'm wondering. It's like a little bear trap. Because they're hefty. I don't yeah. know. I don't. Like a mouse trap is flimsy. I, a rat, that's, you know. I don't want to beast. be stapled in the face. I also so. don't want to be stapled. Anyway, this is not my game. <laughs> Seems like neither Although, is not an option, sadly. Okay, so which one? We're choosing the rat trap. <laughs> Although, how much, yeah. how much does a piercing hurt in the cheek? Like that? That's like a pierceable body part. Well, have you guys seen the movie UHF? No. Okay, it's the Weird Al movie about like the radio station, and the guy who plays Jackie Aprile on The Sopranos gets stapled in the cheek multiple times, and I did see that vividly last week. Anyway, the point is um, (laughs) that uh, the uh, less painful is actually the staple into the cheek. Mm. That's from the bullhorn Uh, acacia ant, and it's actually just a pain level 1.8. Huh. 
Oh, okay. I'll try that. Yeah, okay. try that yeah. at home. And the more painful is the trap Wait, dog. wait. We have to clarify, actually. We have to clarify, probably for caveat's sake, at least. Please do not try say, that at uh, home. Listen, it's in the Although venue I'm, title. I'm definitely going to do it and let you know. <laughs> Um, the trap jaw ant is the rat trap snapping your index fingernail. And another thing that's interesting about this is that Schmidt's uh, naming uh, seems to follow a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, like types that the ant or the, the types of bugs that they are, like the nomenclature of the bugs seems to match the pain he describes. For example, it's not in the game, but there's um, one described as a cut on your elbow stitched with a rusty needle. And that's the suturing army ant. Um, and looking it up, I discovered that there's kind of oh. an apocryphal myth about using ants' mandibles to suture wounds. Yeah. Is that a myth? Well, wow. it's theoretically not. Like, I think I think there may be uh, historical evidence of tribes using, indigenous tribes using the mandibles to stitch wounds, but, like, it's not recommended as, like, a scout's, you know what I mean? Like, uh, recommendation if you run out of sutures you should just use the ants because they say yeah, it could become I, infected and then you hmm. die i definitely learned that in school i yeah. have this super cute wow. image of like someone has like a huge cut and then to like suture it together they take the ants by the pinchers and they pinch the skin back together that's, all that's what you do exactly no the that's head actually off. Wait, what happened. Wait, that's yeah. the oh okay that's how you suture and it just oh. huh but it holds even okay interesting wow very good. Very good. Okay, wait. I have one more round go. also. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. So would you rather? Uh, <laughs> these are slightly more conceptual. Um, well, one's very visceral. Okay. Would okay. you rather have a pain that is pure, then messy, then corrosive, such as love and marriage followed by divorce? <laughs> or flesh-eating bacteria dissolves your muscles one by precious one? Okay, I personally, I would rather, I think it's better to have loved and then lost feeling in your arm than to have never loved and lost, et cetera, at all. So I'm going to go with that one. Also, the Mm. other one sounds horrible. Yeah. The bacteria one? I mean, this is really a question about Schmidt, isn't it? Yes. One one questions what kind of pain. Name my ex. Yeah, this is a good callback. Um, okay, so we're choosing the the love then marriage followed by divorce. Yeah. So I will tell you the love and marriage followed by divorce is at a pain level two, and the fleshing bacteria is a pain level three. Mm. What do you think oh. the name yeah, of the bug um, is oh. that that was described as love and marriage followed by divorce? Um, it's like Cheryl uh, or the, something. No. <laughs> like, what, what are we going for? <laughs> Give us a hint, at least. The heartbreaker, oh, heartbreaker the, ant. Kind of. It's more. It's more the like. It's beetle? more like describing the description itself. It's the artistic wasp. Oh. Okay. Which is interesting because, like, what does it contribute to the huh. arts? I have yet to see. And uh, the pain level three on the other, the flesh-eating bacteria, never encounter Argent- an Argentine harvester ant because that's mm. what it will do to you. All right, uh, that's nice. my <laughs> presentation on facts. Amazing. Love it. Let's move on to the quiz. Um, As I mentioned at the top of the show, is loosely inspired by our theme. And so I have chosen to call it, What's Bugs Got to Do? Got to do with it. (laughs) What's Bugs Got to Do with it? Got to do with it. Not doodle bug. (laughs) Doodle bug. (laughs) Oh, that's... Okay, that's cute. I got a gross so, bug stuck in my hair. 
All right, so this quiz's theme um, is basically centered around all the odd and perhaps unexpected intersections of the insect world and human culture, or as one might call it, arthroanthropology. So question one, what natural pigment, which has been used by humanity for centuries and is still used widely today, is extracted from crushed up cochineals? I was going to say carrageenan gum, mm. oh. but, but that... What well, it's that? like a thing made from bugs, but I don't think it's a pigment. Yes. So we do have somebody in the chat who mentioned that it is a red Ooh. dye. Yes. Is it num- number 40? Judy, you are killing it. <laughs> wow. I, so I think the, uh, it's not red okay. number 40, but it is like, a, well, it's, it's natural red four. Oh. <laughs> so it's on the, it's on the spectrum. It's a bit lower in the numbers. Okay. Um, but, all right, the answer that I was looking for was Carmen, historically, okay. C-A-R-M-I-N-E, or Natural Red 4 um, in food manufacturing. So it's been around, there it wow. is, okay. um, for centuries. Uh, so civilizations in Mesoamerica have been using Carmen as far back as 2000 BCE, and then it actually spread to Europe uh, through the conquistadors and actually took Europe by storm um, because it was the brightest and richest red pigment they had ever laid their eyes upon. Um, so since then, it was used in Renaissance paintings and various textiles and garments. And nowadays, it's still used as a natural dye, but for red foods and makeup um, and things of that nature. Uh, Starbucks actually got into a bit of hot water <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> Uh, for using it in their more colorful drinks, um, because it actually makes them non-vegetarian or oh, right, yeah. vegan-friendly. Wow. Yeah. So the company did issue a statement. They would transition to lycopene, which is the pigment that makes tomatoes red. Huh. Um, but when you see natural red number four on a food label or an artificially colored food, know that it's not artificially colored, but it's also not vegetarian. That is good to know. Is, Very interesting. Is this why Carmen yeah. San Diego is that hue of like <laughs> Maybe. I, I'm not sure. I looked into it in terms of like the name Carmen, but it's, it doesn't share an etymology, unfortunately, but I was hoping for that to be the case (laughs) as well. All right. So question two, what insect is featured in works by Giacomo Puccini, Eric Carr, Lewis Carroll, and Vladimir? I got it. Caterpillar. Yes. Slash butterfly. Yes. But different phases of the same thing awesome so yes killed it i only guessed based on the lewis carroll because there weren't that many other bugs in it puccini nice yeah yes so i was thinking of madame butterfly the very hungry caterpillar who did turn into a handsome butterfly by the end of the book after eating everything in sight and also uh, vladimir nabokov uh, apart from writing a lot of novels also studied and drew um and wrote about a lot of butterflies So there we have it. Okay, question number three. So according to a recent diagnosis, a mosquito may have been the downfall of what ancient historical figure and his empire, which at its largest stretched from Greece and Egypt to modern day Mm. Pakistan. Seems like Alexander's range, right? The great? Right. That seems like the best. As someone who doesn't know all the history, that seems like a pretty good one. I mean, yeah, and malaria is the... Alexander the Great? Yeah. Uh, so Alexander the Great Yay. is correct. Um, it was not malaria, though. So uh, so yes, he was the king of Macedonia, Persia, student of Aristotle, etc. Um, but yeah, so he died can, historically. Can I guess like, the arbovirus or disease? That's like... Please. Um, is it yes. still one that's around today? It is. And uh, consider where his empire was, because that can also maybe help tilt you towards it. I got it. Is it West Nile? 
Yeah. Yes. Nice. Awesome. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, all that was recorded of his death is that basically, like, he had a massive party and drank, like, tons of undiluted wine, which back then, like, they always diluted their wine, so he was pretty lit. (laughs) Bunch of lightweights. Um, And then just... Yeah, and then just um, came down with like sudden, like fairly severe symptoms. Um, and this instance, this incident was also preceded by a bunch of ravens just like dying at his feet, which was you know like a mythological oh. human. Um, so it was a, a bunch so of it was scholars. a murder. Yeah. Damn you, Corvid. <laughs> and uh, yes, yes, in some ways he may have been murdered. Um, but yeah, so apparently every year a bunch of scholars get together at the University of Maryland for a public postmortem, aka academia's idea of fun. Um, and they do this for various historical figures. So in the past they've like diagnosed Beethoven with syphilis and Poe with rabies and uh, the Roman emperor, emperor Claudius with like just eating some bad shrooms. At one of these meetings it was proposed that Alexander the Great died of West Nile, um, not only because of his symptoms but also taking that sort of like incidence of the ravens dying um, as more than just mythological, um, because West Nile does infect birds, oh. and that can actually like precede uh, West Nile spreading through a community where you'll wow. see a bunch of birds dying. So they kind of tied in that historical element and incorporated it into the diagnosis, which That's I thought really, was really, really interesting. Can I take 20 seconds to tell yeah. a cool West Nile story? So have, yes. you, have you all heard Absolutely. how the Bronx Zoo tiger had COVID and that was a big deal? Yes. Um, so that was reminiscent of when West Nile came to New York City in 1999. Um, a bunch of people in Queens were getting sick and it was kind of unclear what the cause was. Uh, but at the same time at the Bronx Zoo, like four exotic birds died suddenly. And so the pathologist uh, and and like basically necropist uh, or necroscopist at the Bronx Zoo did these autopsies and was like, I think they have this new virus that we don't see. Um, and so a lot of U.S. epidemiologists thought it was St. Louis encephalitis. And like there's a call between a lab in Colorado and the CDC and this Bronx Zoo, like veterinary pathologist, like kept telling people in the health department and they're kind of brushing her off. And she somehow got the number into this conference call and just like sat in the back. And then like at the perfect moment, jumped in and was like, I know what it is. And I figured it out. And like, you guys are doing it all wrong. And like, listen to me. And they're like, who is this woman? Like, get her off the call. But like... <laughs> She had totally diagnosed the disease properly and like everyone then like had heard and had to pay attention. It's just really cool story of like a veterinary pathologist, like diagnosing an outbreak, like before anyone else in epidemiology had done it. That's amazing. That's pretty nuts. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, Question four. So that actually came up Mm. earlier, but uh, what organism has genes named hedgehog, Kenan Barbie, Cleopatra, and Tin Man, among other? I mean, I have to names. assume it's Weevil. No. Oh, if only. Oh, it's not. Okay. What organism is that? A bug? I. It is a bug. Oh, sorry. I should. It's yes. okay. I just my biology specify. terminology has failed me since high school, so. I, um. <laughs> but yes, definitely an. Insect. Okay, the fact that there's an insect named Ken and Barbie. Wait, is it? What is that? Are you holding up the insect in question, Rob? Who, me? What? What? Is that oh, a f- oh, is he? <laughs> Yes! That's disgusting. <laughs> also, I'm glad I'm right. Awesome. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, oh, I love that assist. That is some creativity right there. It also could only happen under these very precise Absolutely. circumstances. I really appreciate that. Um, but yes, Drosophila melanogaster. Yes. So... They're very frequently used as model organisms for genetics research, um, both historically and even still nowadays. Um, 
So basically what happens is that people will discover like certain genes in flies and then name them after the kind of like appearance or behavioral changes um, that come with mutating that gene. So the example being like this guy right here, um, they mutated the gene that controls development of antennae and then like legs grew there instead or like aging related to that. Um, and so I actually don't know what this gene is called, but it's probably like legs on face or something stupid like that. Basically, um, the examples that I gave were hedgehog, and when that gene is mutated, um, the fly larvae develop little like spine-like growths. Ooh. So the researchers like, hey, it's a hedgehog. It's funny. Let's call it that. Yeah. Um, the uh, mutations to the Ken and Barbie gene uh, make the flies have no external genitalia. Um, the Cleopatra gene, which actually this one I love, um, when it's mutated, can actually kill flies, but only if the flies also only have a gene called ASP. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> oh my God. Right. Oh, that's so good. That one's so good. Um, and then flies with a mutated Tin Man gene are born without a heart. <gasps> Poor guys. Oh. But all right. Question five. Uh, what insects are used through computer simulations of their behavior to generate like algorithms for computing best routes to places? Wow. Interesting. So think of insects that are really good at like making paths. Yeah, from places. it sounds like ants. Some kind oh. of ant, well, right? Uh, it is ants, and honestly, like I could do a whole fact about ants, maybe some other time because they're so cool. Um, but yes, basically, well, first I want to mention that the study of ants is myrmecology, which like reading it sounds like ecology but just spoken like really quietly and mumbly but no it's a study of ants um but basically like this is kind of spurred by the fact that ant colonies operate at like a pinnacle of efficiency um and this is because ants can like cooperate and delegate and communicate in ways that allow them to complete like really important tasks for the colony um without like any delays or hiccups or mistakes um which is impressive because ant colonies are huge so getting that information around you'd think would be um really complicated but basically, a part of how they do this is that each individual ant acts on local information. So basically, they will sort of communicate with each other, either by like physical interactions or by leaving pheromones that other ants can pick up. And an ant will kind of go around the world and sort of like take in the information in its immediate environment from other ants or from pheromones. Um, and then together, they're all, they'll all kind of do this and like synthesize their information. So like one example of this is how ants sort of like optimize their route from the colony to a food source. So say you'll have like your first ant that is like, we'll say, or I don't know, we'll say S is the colony. And he wanders out and is like, oh, there's some food here. Sick. All right. I'm going to go back depositing pheromones like all along the route and, you know, and tell my, you know, my compatriots, the colony, that, hey, there's some food here. And then the other ants will kind of like follow these pheromones and make their way over and maybe make like a few like back and forth trips. But these ants can also follow different paths than the original one to actually get to this food source. So like the most optimal path after a while, based on the ants sort of collective learning, will have the highest concentration of pheromones, which the ants can detect. And then after a while, they will just all automatically take the most efficient route to go from the colony to the food source. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Um, but basically, by modeling uh, sort of like ant behaviors and dynamics and their ability to do this, um, we actually do that with computers uh, to help us solve problems about kind of like efficiently getting from one place to another. So like um, companies that run like deliveries, like delivery services will use this to model vehicle routing um, in different neighborhoods and areas to try and optimize that. Um, and this is applied to like internet routing as well. So like delegating internet traffic like between and across different networks. Um, and it's literally just like simulating ants um, and kind of like their way of communication to arrive at the best solution. 
Question <laughs> six. So in an act of entomological warfare, the Ark of the Covenant may have been filled with what insect? Um, mm. And if you want a hint, I do have it in the form of a sound bite. Yes. Sure. Oh, is that the Spanish, Spanish flies? <laughs> it's a song, Spanish Fly. Ah. Uh, S- Spanish, oh, Spanish Fleet, <laughs> but I'll give it to you because I'm just glad that someone knew that song. <laughs> God damn it. I'm so glad. I mean, it's great, it's great thinking music, too, but yes. Um, so, yeah, this is a really, like, interesting thing that I stumbled upon. Um, but this fact comes from Jeffrey Lockwood, who's an entomologist at the University of Wyoming and also the author of a novel called Six-Legged Soldiers, Using Insects as Weapons of War. So uh, in his book, he uses like entomological warfare conceptually uh, to kind of explain this sort of like biblical and action movie reputation of the Ark of the Covenant as deadly to anyone who dares to open it. Um, so to kind of like give a little... Uh, sort of like background here. Uh, the Ark, you know, was constructed by Moses to hold the Ten Commandments, and then it was guarded by the Israelites until the Philistines captured it in a battle, um, and then they brought it back to their capital city. So per the Bible, God was not chill with this transfer of custody, <laughs> um, and he struck the city with plague, and then the next city that the Ark went to was also struck with plague, and then the city the Ark went to after that was also struck with plague, and the Philist- until the Philistines were like, you know, we're, it's not worth it, just keep it, take it back, it's fine. Um, and they gave it back to the Israelites those Philistines. Um, but the book hypothesizes that maybe the reason that this all played out like this is that, is that the Israelites, um, kind of when they were entering this battle and anticipating that the Ark could be stolen um, and trying to protect its you know, sacred contents, um, might have put in clothing uh, from people who had the bubonic plague, which was around back then. Um, and that clothing could have then carried infested fleas. So then when the Philistines inevitably like couldn't like succumb to their curiosity and open the thing, fleas could have jumped out and then spread plague around. Nice. Um, or their faces could have melted off, you know. Um, but I mean, who are we to say? Mm. So yeah, bit a bit of weird history. Okay, uh, so question seven: uh, What insects milk? after it was found to be extraordinarily high in protein, has been like bandied about like really just in the press based on a few papers, um, but as a potential superfood. I'm, I'm, com- I'm confident <laughs> that cockroaches make milk. Yeah. I buy okay, that. Yeah. That sounds foul, but I buy it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if anything else in, in the insect world does, but I know cockroaches do, and I know it is extraordinarily uh. nutritive. So, it gives me yeah. hives just thinking about it. I think. I think so. It is yeah. cockroaches. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hate th- I hate it. Oh, yeah, I love the young ones when they don't have their, their, bad. their color no. yet. Yeah, they're really tiny. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's cockroaches, uh, specifically the Pacific beetle cockroach. Um, so move over bone broth, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so obviously this one on the surface is very gross, and admittedly a bit below that, it keeps being gross. But, like, when you get to the bottom, like, after a lot of grossness, it's actually kind of cool. Um, and they actually have live births, so they don't lay eggs, which is kind of wild. But then they feed their young with this milk um, that has like these really high levels of protein and fat, um, actually in the order of four times more nutritious than the same quantity of cow's milk. Um, so because of this, you know, researchers 
basically analyzed this milk and were like, oh, this could be useful and nutritious for not just cockroaches. Um, so of course, there's still a lot of like additional testing that needs to be done before we could consume it. Um, but there is work going on to kind of like reproduce it in the lab so you're not milking cockroaches, but also so that you're not like directly drinking milk from cockroaches, if that helps. Um, but in kind of like a cool sort of conceptual way, um, because it's so nutritious, it could actually be really useful for folks uh, who have a hard time getting enough calories um, because of like medical conditions or um, you know where they are in the world. So that's kind of a cool, promising thing. Question eight, uh, who had his first and far from his last a taste of nature as a child when he popped a beetle into his mouth while trying to collect just too many beetles? This sounds like a. This sounds like something like Darwin would have gotten up to. Some like Darwin yeah. shenanigans. Young Dar- Young Darwin be would be harder. a fantastic too. <laughs> Ooh, I would take that over Young Sheldon any day. Um, but yes, it was it was yeah. Darwin. <laughs> and this oh, picture great. is from an NPR article covering the story that I'm about to tell, and I just I love it because, so much. <laughs> because he did he ate like loads <laughs> yeah, of animals, he did. right? Uh, well, to kind of like go back to the bugs really briefly. So this story comes from like a collection of his autobiographical writings. And basically it talks, it just tells the story of like young Darwin one day skipping around, tearing bark off of trees and looking for rare beetles as one does in their youth. Um, he found himself in a pickle where like he picked up one beetle and it was like this gorgeous, like really slick, nice beetle. And then found another one, like another just like, you know, this beetle slaps, grab that beetle too. And then found a third one. <laughs> But obviously only had two hands and insufficient hands for beetles. So he popped them in his mouth and then like in a very like Aesop fable kind of like sequence of events, um, the beetle like squirted beetle juice. Um, (laughs) We're too too short. We're fine. Um, Like in his mouth and he spit it out and then he lost one of the other beetles. So he was... You know, he only had one beetle at the end, so take whatever lesson from that uh, you'd like to take. Uh, but just to say that this incident, like, didn't do anything, clearly, to deter Darwin from just picking up random critters off the ground and shoving them into wow. his mouth, because he was an omnivore. And, like, I feel like people usually say omnivore to describe, like, people who are really curious and voracious learners, but he just literally ate everything that could move. Um, So when he was studying at Cambridge, uh, he organized this little kind of club called the the Glutton Club with some of his friends, um, where they would sort of like munch on local fauna, um, including hawks, bitterns, and brown owls, the last of which he described in a negative sense as indescribable. Um, And then, uh, of course, course you would expect um, the Galapagos to him were then just a giant buffet. So he unleashed his his appetites um, during his naturalist expeditions, um, eating iguanas, armadillos, pumas. Um, He ate (laughs) an animal called, scientifically, um, the Ray Darwini, which was named after him after he literally sent his leftovers to London for classification. So yeah, guy was guy was very hungry, um, and yeah, I guess I don't know. Taste is a sense by which we learn about the worlds. Maybe maybe that's how he justified it. Not sure. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was my quiz. You guys you guys nailed it. You nailed the Ooh, yeah. quiz. Thank Nicely you. done. All right. Well, I think um, in that case, I think we've reached the end of the show. Yeah. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been a blast. Um, Thanks, Sam, for joining us. It's been so fun to have you and, like, learn from your pun (laughs) awesomeness. 
Um, thanks to the Trunk Pumpkins for playing us in uh, for our intro. And of course, thank you to Caveat for hosting us and making available all of this awesome nerdtastic programming. Um, if you like what you heard and what you saw, you know, we're, we do shows at Caveat. We have some future shows scheduled. Um, so keep an eye out for us. If you like what you heard, but not what you saw, we have a podcast <laughs> um, called Fax Machine. This podcast will look great if you didn't have to look at our faces. <laughs> exactly. Um, you can check us out. Subscribe if you like what you hear. Uh, we are on basically any platform that you listen to podcasts on. Um, and on that note, we'd also love to hear from all of you guys. So I mentioned before, you can reach us on Twitter and also on Instagram at Fax Machine Pod and on Fax Machine <laughs> Podcast on Facebook. Um, Noah, do you want to start? I'm at Arcs and Sciences. Cool. Rob? I am at Sweater Vest SCI. Cool. And Sam? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ahoy, Samantha. And you can find me at underscore EM Costa. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. That's all for now. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.